Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. Today's Friday, so I'm going to be doing a flashback episode, sharing an outtake from episode 244, my conversation with Hilton Owls. It first aired on January 19th, 2014. Hilton Owls is a Pulitzer Prize winning theater critic. He is the chief theater critic of The New Yorker magazine and the author of several books. His most recent book is a memoir entitled Pin Up. His other books include The Women, and White Girls, which was nominated for a National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. A flashback to episode 244 is coming up momentarily. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the Other People podcast on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you would like to receive my free once-a-week email newsletter, you can do that over at Substack. Sign up, read it. And if you would like to join the Other People Patreon community, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. All right, so today's flashback is from episode 244, my conversation with Hilton Owls. Again, it first aired on January 19th, 2014. A reminder that the full episode is available in the feed. So if you like this flashback and you're interested in listening to the full conversation, just look for episode 244. It's there. All right, let's get to it. 
Let's go back in time to episode 244 and my conversation with Hilton Owls. I think when there's space, your brain opens in a, in a very particular kind of way. You, know, um, you start to, I think you can see a vista or a horizon much more clearly than you can in your own gut. Well, you know, it's like, it's, and it's such a logical thing to say because I was reading just this morning, uh, I think it was on Andrew Sullivan's blog, but he, there was something that, the, that he was saying about uh, architecture. He was linking to an essay about how architecture uh, and mental health are very closely tied or that there's a, you know, a, direct, yeah. a direct line of impact, which when you read that, you're like, oh, of course. And then I think about my apartment with its like seven and a half foot ceilings and you know, how cave-like it can sometimes seem. And it's like, you know, I need, I need uh, higher ceilings. I think that would affect my well, you're gonna, you're gonna, I mean, you're going to have to go... Um Sell more ads on your on your podcast. Yeah, <laughs> in order to achieve that goal, and when you do, you can have a guest room and that's like me. Yeah, well, you know exactly. You can come on out and. Uh, <laughs> but it's going to take a lot of ads, and and the other thing I was going to say in the same uh, context is that I have a friend who is a uh, he's like a web designer guy. He's technology, uh-huh. but he ha- mm-hmm. he's creative. He's a coder, and he's got like kind of like an artistic soul and. You know, he considers what he does to be art, and I wouldn't argue that. Yeah. But he has this thing because he spends so many hours in front of his computer screen that, you know, he refuses to work on a small monitor. Like a laptop would never do. Like he's got to have a desktop with like a gigantic, like 50 inch monitor because he's convinced that like a big screen equals big ideas and a small screen equals small ideas, which. I think that, I think that there's something to that. I think that if you can see yourself spread out in some way, language-wise or visually, it makes you feel that not so bad about taking up more space with your thoughts and heart and brain. I think it allows you um, to take up space, which I find very difficult to do um, just because I wasn't raised to you know, take more than I needed. Well, okay, and so this is kind of a, maybe somewhat related, but I, I've been reading up on you, and uh, you write in bed. You're one of the, I guess I call them horizontal writers. Is this still the case? Yes, I'm a, I'm a completely horizontal author, um, but I've switched now. I'm not in bed anymore. I'm on the floor um, because I feel that the hard surface um, contributes to a kind of monk-like severity um, in execution. When I'm in bed, like, the senses tend to get rounder and softer. And when I'm on the floor, I'm just meaner and leaner. Yeah, there's got to, I mean, it seems like there's got to be some <laughs> level of like self-punishment involved in the writing act. Like the bed is too comfortable. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And and the thing that's great about staying at my friend's place is that I don't know how television works. So there's, there's no real comfort. Um, I love television. So since there's no real comfort, I'm really forced to, you know, do it, do the work. Okay, so, uh, but I've, I've also read, and I know you don't have television where you are right now, but that you, as part of your writing ritual, because you're a morning writer, but before you, get yeah. to wor- before you get to work in the morning, you watch television, and not only do you watch television, but you watch, uh, and I would put this in quotes, I guess, but you, you purposefully watch bad television. Yes, I love, I love cheap morning shows, and I particularly love watching the weirdness that is the Today Show now. And I also adore, and I don't think it's a cheap show, I, I adore Wendy Williams. I love her show. Um, she does a lot. Um, she doesn't do a lot for a lot of people, but she does a lot in terms of translating 
black American culture to a, a wide audience. I think her show is fantastic. And I think the t- today's show is so weird in its efforts to, you know, be number one, that it kind of doesn't have a locus. It's a very weird show. Yeah, I, you know... And I, I think that, you know, bad art can be very inspiring. Okay, so I was going to say, let's zero in on that. Like, what does it specifically do for you to prepare you to sit down on the floor to work? It's visual, it's verbal without being meaningful. <laughs> and so the, the meaning, um, I have to supply the meaning for the day. It's not going to come from those television programs. And I think that that's fine. I, people are talking, but there's no deep meaning there. And so if I want to have that feeling, I have to supply it myself. Because, you know, I think that like a lot of writers, you know, read before writing. They will sit down with a book that inspires them or like they'll go back to a favorite book or something just to sort of, I don't know, get their uh, get their mind working in some sort of literary capacity. And then there are other writers who can't do that. They have to kind of like roll out of bed and start writing. And then maybe they read yeah. after, they read afterwards to sort of take their mind off of whatever narrative they're in. Right. So, so how does reading factor in? Like, could, could you write? After reading, or would reading mess things um, up? I think I think the thing that I can read in the morning is poetry. It's a more spiritually disciplined art, and it has a resonance which which doesn't. It's not discursive. I mean, it's emotionally discursive, but the sentences are shorter, and it's not discursive in a way like prose that would really sort of interfere with my rhythm. It can, in fact, help one find one's rhythm, but it's not, it's demanding in a different way than prose. Yeah, and I find, So poetry, yes. Yeah, I'm the same way. I find like reading poetry helps like get my brain going in a way that energizes it rather than depletes it. Not that reading prose mm-hmm. depletes me, but there's just, there's, I, you know, I don't know what it is, but I, I've had the same experience. I think that uh, there's something, uh, inspirational is not the right word, but it, you know, it gets me going somehow Yes, yes. in ways that I, I clearly cannot articulate, but to get back to, uh, you and your new book, uh, white girls, it, it's your first book in 15 years. And I'm curious, yeah. I'm curious to know, uh, about the 15 year period. It's a fairly long spell in between books. Like how, how did that unfold? Well, I had been reluctant to do a collection, and I had been working on a book, a uh, work of fiction that kind of splintered off. And I met Dave Edgar. Um, I think collections are not good unless you have a central idea, and I didn't have a central idea for a collection. You didn't have a what? So then I, a central idea. Central? Oh, right, yeah. Idea, I mean, when you think about great books of essays like The White Album by Joan Didion or Notes of a Native Son by James Baldwin. It has a real theme. The book really becomes, you know, something that is uh, tied together. And um, so I feel, I felt that I didn't have that. I met Dave Eggers, who was very encouraging about me publishing with him. And in thinking about that, I thought of, um, I, I had a joke with a friend um, about a book about white, I mean, black guys and white girls. And when the person who said that sentence said it, um, the white girls section of the joke jumped out at me as a unifying theme. Now, what I mean by white girls is not 
necessarily predetermined by race or gender, but a particular way of being in the world or admiring quote-unquote others in the world. So, you know, you have Jennifer Lee in the Richard Pryor section. She married him twice. Or you'll have, I mean, Flannery O'Connor. Or you'll have a female-identified Truman Capote. Um, or you'll have Malcolm X's mother. I mean, these, these are people that you would, you could categorize as white and or female, but the stories are, do and do not revolve around them. I felt that if I had a distant onlooker like Jennifer or, you know, had some distance, who had some distance on race like Flannery O'Connor at the end of that piece, um, it would be a much less, I think it would be a much more, com I wanted it to be a much more complex book. And putting those characters together, because I think of all of them as characters, it was, um, it was kind of a chorus about visibility and marginalization. And that's why the book is called White Girls. Um, but in terms of black lit, we already had Black Boy by Richard Wright, and we had Tar Baby by Tony Morrison, and we had Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Walden Johnson. And so what if we had a title that was off-center, but still dealt with certain things? Right, right. Well, and it's funny, too, because I've been reading, uh, like, in reviews that people have written about the book or essays that people have yeah. written about the book that a consistent uh, thing that seems to happen is that people uh, feel the need to describe their experience of reading the book, particularly in public, and how the title elicits a response from onlookers in ways that maybe other titles might not. You know, I, I just noticed that right. a lot of people are like, I was on the bus and people kept looking at me or, you know, and someone came up to me and, and stopped me and asked me what the book was about, you know, all that kind of stuff. So did oh, you... Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it happened It happened over and over again as I was prepping. So did, did you, like, have a sense, you know, when you zeroed in on that title that it was going to have that kind of uh, impact or that it would be... No, I didn't. Um, I really um, was, you know, sort of amused by the title, but I didn't think that it was incendiary in any way. I felt... I didn't even sort of visualize what people would look like on the subway reading it, but the weird part of it is, you know, did people ask questions when Black Boy was published or Native Son? I don't... I think it's a very sort of interesting response. Um, would we? Would the book have incited people to come up to you if it said, you know, uh, Negro or gay colored person or whatever? Would they? Would they feel as as uh, well, I guess enforced to have some sort of response or white boys. I don't know. I don't, I think even then that they would they wouldn't mind. They probably think it was about skateboarders or something. <laughs> <laughs> and we will be right back. Hey, everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature. I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. 
He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. And now, back to the program. So I want to ask you about one of the essays, uh, subjects in particular, uh, the Andre Leon Talley uh, essay. He's the is he still the creative director at Vogue? Uh, forgive me for no, he's running a magazine in Russia now. Oh, he is okay, but um, mm-hmm. you know that essay in reviews often gets pointed to as the one that is harsh. And yeah. uh, do you like? What is your feeling on that? Like, was that something that's you know? It's you? very, it's very interesting because I just got an email from Jessica Hagerburn, you know, the great novelist, about how much she liked the book, and and she said, you know, I really don't understand why people are pointing that out because what you're really doing is is, is sort of talking about the world around him, and so I think that people would rather see. Or there's more news value in two black queens going at it, or one black queen reading another black queen, when in fact that's a real misreading of the essay. The piece was about the sort of awful world that he was in, as opposed to him, whom I adored. So the the reading of it was very weird to me, and unfortunately, to some degree, I think Andre believed the audience, but I knew from a mutual friend that he liked the piece very, very much. Um, before these other people started weighing in. I wasn't attacking Andre. I loved him. I really did love him. And uh, Has that caused personal fallout? I mean, have you guys, did he, did he get, did he tell you? Um, he liked it a lot at first, and then he didn't. And, you know, he's, I don't know what his situation is, but I would imagine he's very sensitive to public criticism. Um, and it's, I think the radical thing would have been for us to be friends rather than him sort of deciding that, you know, I wasn't a good person or whatever um, based on what other people said, not what he really felt. Okay, because, you know, it's interesting. That's that's always a drag. Yeah, well, and, um, you know, you run that risk, I think, when you write about people that you know or are friendly with. I mean, when you're working in nonfiction and memoir and this book sort of blends genres, but that's something that you have to sort of be willing to risk. And uh, there are countless stories of writers doing that and then, you know, relationships suffering as a consequence. But Yeah, but, you know, you have something like Lillian Ross's profile of Hemingway, and Hemingway writes her a letter saying, I'm completely baffled by the ways in which people are responding to um, your piece. I really liked it. And I think that that was a smarter, realer thing for Hemingway to do than you know, go with public consensus. He knew what she was trying to do as a writer. 
it just was a very sad thing to me because I really love Andre. Well, he's not and, a writer. Um, he's not a writer. That's an interesting distinction to make. That's I mean, true. He's that's a, true. He's a talented guy in his own right, but it's like, you know, I think a writer might have more empathy with the writerly task and you know, I think one of the interesting things that you uh said about him and I I might be you know, because I've uh been reading the book and then also been reading interviews that you've done is that you point out uh, like just how deft uh, he would have to be in order to thrive in the world that he's in, you know, right. how deft with people. And like, I, you know, I have to admit, I, I don't know a ton about the world of fashion, but I am in my own way fascinated with it. Like I saw the, uh, the documentary on Anna Wintour, what was it called? Uh-huh. The September edition? Was that what it was called? September issue. The September issue, yeah. So I remember watching yeah. that and then, um, you know, finding like great. And is it Grace Coddington? Um, yeah. But I start to get to know these characters and finding the world very fascinating and um, how it's all put together and um, how like empty it can seem. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. You know, from in like from a writerly perspective, like there's not. I mean, I think there's a lot of artistry to the world of fashion um, that I'm learning to better appreciate, but I don't know as a writer if the – it seems very different, you know, especially in the world of like, um, you know, merchandise and uh, commodified uh, fashion. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. Like just, like just the lack sure, of – Sure, I do. I mean, I think that you're talking about um, the enormous split between – you know, the cult of personality and the cult of money. You know, it's a very economic, economic-driven industry in the way the art world is. And similarly, as in the art world, you know, there's one person, there's the artist, and then there are these workers around the artist. And so there's not a lot of... I mean, it's based on a particular kind of hierarchy that really doesn't exist in the world of books because writers don't make money. So there's no handlers and there's no going in and out of fashion because writing just takes a long time. So it's just a less fraught industry, um, book publishing and magazine publishing. Uh, But fashion is very dangerous if you don't know who you are um, because so much of it is cult and so much of it is trend. And one of the great things about Andre was that he really established a persona very, very early on, which I think helped him survive. Well, he's, he's such the a fashion of the fashion of fashion. Well, if I know about him, you know, if he's reached me and he's like stuck in my memory, I mean, there's, he's a larger than life figure. He's, he's physically very large. He was, he's like almost seven feet mm-hmm. tall. And then he's, you know, obviously the outfits and everything else, but he's really distinct. You remember him. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, and I heard you uh, earlier describe, um, you know, the media's uh, assessment of that particular piece in the book and, you know, maybe their desire to want to try to draw out some kind of conflict from it for the purposes of click through or whatever. But you described yourself as two, you know, you and Andre as two queens going at it. Um, When you say queen, uh, what do you, what do you mean? Like, uh, oh, I'm just saying, you know, gay man, Um, it's just a, it's it's just a colloquialism and, and we weren't going at it. Um, I was just saying that they wanted, a lot of people who were reviewing that piece in particular wanted to position it as that. I think it's just really not in the writing. So that's why I really love Jessica Hagedard sending me that email today. It was such a, it was such a nice acknowledgement. Well, it's nice when somebody reads you well. Yeah, yeah. 
you know. So, and yeah. you know, to go back to the 15-year period between books, um, uh-huh. you know, from the perspective of publishing and, you know, being a writer and, and rolling a book out into the world, did, did you notice distinct changes? I mean, because obviously publishing, like all the, the other culture industries, has gone through its changes, you know, during that period of time. But what was the difference between, you know, the, the, the last book and then this one? And, and, you know, or were there differences or did it feel about the same? Um, no, it felt different. It felt the canvas had gotten larger and I had gotten older and more grown up. I felt felt that there was a, uh, that one of the things I was doing that was really important with the book was really growing up in a certain way. That is, the world had become bigger and I had become bigger in heart and mind. And so I wanted to reflect those things for sure, in what I was writing, and uh, have a bigger canvas of more characters and ideas. Yeah, I think those are the differences. And I think the first book was, in a way, more tentative, and more, in a weird way, for me, more carefully written, because it was... Because it, I think you're always afraid with your first thing that it's not going to be perfect. I'm always, and no book I'm is always perfect. Afraid. I'm always afraid. <laughs> yeah, and no book is perfect. I think I just relaxed more in this in this book. All right, folks, there we go. That was Hilton Owls, episode 244. The episode first aired on January 19th, 2014. You can find Hilton on the internet at hiltonowls.com. You can follow him on Instagram. I gotta say, too, what was I thinking when I asked him about what two queens means? You know, it's fun to revisit these conversations, but it is sometimes painful to listen to myself. <laughs> you know, you can hopefully imagine with this many hours of myself on tape, there are certainly moments where I just. What am I thinking? And now it belongs to the ages. So anyway, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Go subscribe to my weekly newsletter over at uh, Substack. And if you want to help keep this show going into the future, join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You want to do me a favor please give this show a rating wherever you listen if you want an other people t-shirt or a sweatshirt just head on over to the show's official website otherppl.com finally my latest novel is out there waiting for you it's called be brief and tell them everything available in trade paperback ebook and audiobook editions i narrate the audiobook so if you want to read my novel it's called be brief and tell them everything Coming up on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Eliza Clark, author of the novel Penance, available now from Harper Books. Penance is the official October book club pick. So, very fascinating conversation with Eliza Clark. That is coming up in just 48 hours, not even. Stay tuned.